This podcast is supported by an educational grant by Bosch Health, made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Sometimes I'm joking around with my patients that when I die, I want my tombstone to say he cured PIH because it's uh, really a condition where our treatments are not amazing. That's Dr. Vincent Richet, a dermatologist at Pacific Derm in Vancouver, who's my guest today on the JCMS Author Interviews podcast. I'm your host, Kirk Barber, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery, and I'm a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Calgary. Today, we're going to speak with Dr. Richet about his article, Prophylaxis of Post-Inflammatory Hyperpigmentation from Energy-Based Device Treatments, a review. This article was published in our January-February 2021 issue of the journal, Dr. Richet is both a medical and cosmetic dermatologist and holds positions as a clinical instructor at the University of British Columbia, and he's the Director of Continuing Medical Education within the Department of Dermatology and Skin Science at the University of British Columbia. He is well experienced in cosmetic laser procedures and my guest today um, for a discussion of one of the most common complications from the use of these devices. Welcome, Vincent, and thank you for joining me today. So what took you and Dr. Wong into this area of of investigation? Yeah, well, um, you know, first of all, having a uh, medical and cosmetic dermatology practice in Vancouver, I would say that upwards of 40% of my patients are of East Asian and South Asian descent. And so obviously, that's a subset of our patients that are at risk of developing PIH, whether it's from their medical conditions or from our cosmetic procedures, namely, for instance, uh, lasers. You know, Ian and I were both wondering, you know, what is everybody's secret sauce? You know, what are they doing to try to prevent this from happening? Because uh, I talk about PIH all day, every day. Sometimes I'm joking around with my patients that when I die, I want my tombstone to say he cured PIH (laughs) because it's uh, really a condition that takes a lot of place and where our treatments are not amazing. And so why not look into the science behind what supports all of the witchcraft and wizardry that we do either before or after our treatments to try to prevent it from coming. So I would add to that, I don't think our treatments work. Your literature review clearly documents very poor response, if any. Yeah, it's a super frustrating condition, uh, whether it's caused by a medical condition or by our own hands, right? Uh, which uh, uh, puts us in a pretty terrible place uh, with our patients sometimes. Uh, our, you know, the treatments to treat established PIH, you know, when there's 30 options to treat something, you can be sure that nothing is super amazing, right? And yeah. so it's one of those realizations that... Uh, uh, we've got many arrows in our quiver, but nothing uh, nothing's a slam dunk here. Nothing's a home run. So the aim of the article is prophylaxis. Exactly. The idea would be that we know that this, once it occurs, is difficult to treat. Uh, why wouldn't we do our best to look at the recipes in regards to skincare before or skincare uh, after that would try to uh, you know protect us from that um, unpleasant scenario, basically? So um, let's skip way forward in the article and get to the thing that people are listening for. And that is, what is the wizardry? What is the magic potion that you're, how do you deal with it? I mean, 40% is a huge number of patients. And and to talk about it all day and to know that when you're treating someone, you've got a 40% chance of creating this. 
the um you know during my treatment sometimes i have to change my underwear Kirk, you know <laughs> i'm thinking about what's happening and you know we these discussions with uh, our patients it you know when it does uh, when i give them the percentages of how it might happen if it happens to them it's a hundred percent right and so obviously that's a, a tough situation to be in we want to skip to the end right really what ian did here is trying to look at pre-prophylaxis so what's being done before the treatment versus post-prophylaxis what's being done after and I really want to commend him for a huge amount of work. You know, he uh, uh, did all this cut work and the muscle of identifying all these articles, putting them together, pulling the data out. And that was a huge amount of work while he was uh, uh, rotating with me. And uh, the you, you may know that at the beginning, we submitted this as a research letter and there was such interesting content in there. You were like, oh yeah, maybe this could actually be a review article. And we, you know, we put in the effort and put in the work to really make it a, a fully realized article. So you spend a lot of time on PIH in the article and going through the pathophysiology and trying to help us understand it better, including an, a, an entity termed individual chromatic tendency. And now that was fascinating to me because that, I just think of that as, well, if you get it, you get it, right? And, and what I'm understanding from the article is it's different for different folks. The darker you are, the more likely you are to get it. But is there anything about the procedures? Do different procedures bring about or are more likely to cause it? Yeah, that's a really good question. And at the beginning of the um, article, we briefly touched on some of the factors that uh, might increase the risk of PIH. So certainly device selection uh, is an important factor. The amount of fluids that we're delivering, the pulse duration, the number of pulses that we're delivering. And so in many ways, I prevent PIH with device selection and choice of device settings uh, way more than I do with these uh, recipes for skincare before and after, right? And so I think that the pre-treatment and post-treatment prophylaxis is one small piece of the puzzle here of PIH prevention. Are there, are there, has anybody looked at operator, the operators and sort of, are there groups that get, you know, tremendous success and published numbers that are lower than other groups? Um, it's a good question. In the articles that we have, you know, it's mostly derms that are focusing on PIH and oftentimes they're going to be the operators here. If we do better than our extenders or if certain parts of the world do a little bit better, I don't think that's uh, yet clear. And do you get any sense of it at meetings? Are there people that stand up and say, listen, I do X, Y, Z. This is my magic potion. If everybody did this, you, none of you would have PIH in your practices. I don't think I've ever heard anyone be so bold, right? Because okay. we are all plagued mm. uh, with uh, PIH. But what's fascinating is that people that have super high volume resurfacing um, practices, they all have their own thing that they do. And we're all wanting to know what their ritual is and what they're doing. And that's what really got us thinking, okay, what is the science behind it, right? And so it was uh, interesting at Conversations and Controversies. Actually, our article was quoted by Dr. Naz Sadie while she was talking about treating skin of color. And she said, you know, 
here's what I do. Everyone gets hydroquinone two to four weeks before, and they'll get hydroquinone when they're fully recovered afterwards. And I might put some topical steroids immediately on their face after treatment. But let's look at the evidence. The evidence says, that doesn't really do much, you know. And uh, the biggest article that we have is actually from Tina Alster. It's more than 10 years old. And they put 25 people on glycolic acid pretreatment, 25 uh, people on HQ and tretinoin pretreatment, and 50 people had nothing, and everybody behaved the same. The caveat here being that these were phototype 1 to 3 patients. So we probably were not observing the people that were at higher risk of developing PIH. So brings me to look at what you do and sort of say, why on earth would you treat someone skin type phototype four and five with any of these tools? I know there's, there's little options, but what sort of procedures are you doing? Are you contemplating doing? Well, you know, in, uh, because we are both a medical and a cosmetic practice, for instance, we treat a lot of acne. And a lot of our patients, uh, you know, even if we clear them with isotretinoin or we have topical regimens that help them, they're left with acne scars that we want to target. Of course, because of my fear of PIH, ablative resurfacing modalities are not the first thing that I'm going to go to. And so when we might decide that we stick with non-ablative resurfacing, but I can still cause PIH with non-ablative resurfacing. And so, um, you know, device selection was my first step at preventing PIH. But as we repeat treatments and things go well, and I, let's say, push the fluence or push the density to get better results from them, it would be nice to have an insurance policy or a bit of a security blanket to know that we're not getting uh, more and more into trouble. So it truly is an art. Like the rest of medicine and most of the decisions that we make when we're, I keep telling my patients, we went into medicine to help people, but we're more like insurance adjusters sometimes. We're weighing the benefits and the risk and trying to uh, make that make sense for people. When I looked through the prophylaxis story in your article, the only thing that seemed to make any major difference was systemic steroids. Well, the I believe there's about two, two of those articles are pretty favorable towards the uh, post-treatment use of topical steroids as well. And so I thought that, that uh, some of those articles were you know, convincing enough for me to integrate that as part of my practice, which I was already doing. Uh, and so, you know, the, the selection of whether I'm even going to use a prophylaxis regimen with my patients is very personalized and often has a lot to do with their personal history of PIH. And we just need to examine them uh, to uh, determine that. So how do you examine for PIH? Well, we are look, looking at their skin, right? And right. so uh, what do their scars look like? Oftentimes when we're doing, uh, you know, rejuvenation or cosmetic procedures, we're all focused on the face, but we can have some clues on the neck or the back or uh, the arms in regards to uh, how people recover from this. Do you ever use wood to light? To look at established PIH, I can't say that I reach for it very commonly. Of course, the... You know, the idea here being that that uh, uh, superficial pigment would be more readily responsive to topical brightening agents like hydroquinone, for instance. But I can't say that I reach for it very reliably, mostly because once PIH is there, it won't necessarily change the way that I treat it. I was wondering if you might use it 
when you're looking for clues. Mm-hmm. So if somebody in the side of their face, you know, has purely epidermal or dramatically epidermal pigment, you might say, oh, okay, uh, I feel a little more comfortable here that, you know, not that you can, you, you, I mean, it's a large step yeah. to infer that it'll be the same because there's lots of differences, right? Body sight and tool and all that sort of stuff. But one of the interesting tips that I heard, uh, I believe it might've been at Skin of Color Society is to look at patients' palms and to see that if the lines of their palms are hyperpigmented, that that might be a clue that they will more readily hyperpigment than our patients that don't have these darker lines. And so uh, that, I, I thought that was a, a really interesting clue. And uh, you can totally be a Dr. House type of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> with, oh, I'll just look at your palms to predict, uh, predict your future, basically. <laughs> so uh, were they predicting dermal? hyperpigmentation or epidermal with, with the palm? Yeah, good question. I think uh, this was a sort of a yes-no PIH uh, Okay, got risk. it, got it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. Well, still the wizardry goes on and on and on and on, right? <laughs> yeah, it really does. Yeah. So let's give some practical advice. So the art form comes in. You've decided to do the procedure. You're selecting your tool, how you're going to use your tool. What's the red? And it must have a sort of a standard regimen that you tell people to do before and after. What's the before? Well, the before has a lot to do with sun protection, sun avoidance, and not being tan. And so that's definitely, um, and that's for really all of our procedures, because we think that if melanocytes are activated and excited, uh, that they will more uh, readily generate PIH. The other component of that is, you know, if if you're trying to um, target pigment and the background is more pigmented, you're getting less and less specific uh, with your device, right? And so uh, not only is it to increase the effectiveness of your treatment, but it's also to uh, decrease risk of side effects for people. So do you avoid July and August in September or May, June, July and August? Or do, do, do you select months for certain people? Well, I have to tell you that our um, our devices are humming uh, less in July and August, where our staff who are extenders spend their time doing more daylight PDT treatments for our patients. And so there's a bit of a seasonality to it. We we will still book treatments in July and August, but we know that a host of our patients are going to show up looking tanned and we will just simply cast them away. Or we need to explain to patients that yes, if they do show up and they're not tan, that they're basically giving up that week following that treatment, right? Uh, this is uh, indoor time, really avoiding uh, as much outdoor exposure as possible. Have you found a sunscreen that helps you with visible light? Well, anything that has a bit of a tint on there, we think is going to help. But uh, how effective that is, is a good question. And we do allude in this uh, article that uh, our patients with FITS uh, 3, 4, 5, 6, you know, there's some pretty good evidence showing that visible light alone or quite a bit of blue light is enough to cause hyperpigmentation. Okay, so you've done the procedure. They're getting up to leave. What's your advice Outside of photo protection, we, I, I think we're pretty clear there. Well, Rich, uh, before I was doing it, it was witchcraft and wizardry, but Rich from this review, uh, if my patients have had a history of uh, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation or I suspect that they're at high risk of it, I will actually apply clobetasol ointment to the treatment area immediately in the office. 
Uh, I do not give them a prescription for them to use it by themselves. I know some people do that for two, three days after the procedure, but I just do that one uh, application after the procedure. Uh, you know, for instance, two weeks ago, I did fractionated CO2 resurfacing of uh, uh, one of my Asian patients on the cheeks. And we knew from spot testing his temple uh, that he developed PIH for two, three weeks after that. So this is, uh, we, you know, we, we took that extra step of doing spot treatment to see what the response was like, uh, to see if it was going to be worth it for this patient to do it. And immediately after his resurfacing, I uh, applied the clobetazole ointment to try to shut off some of that excessive uh, uh, inflammation in the area. And in a few of those uh, articles that are in the review in regards to the post-treatment prophylaxis, uh, it did show that it helped a bit. What's your sense? My sense is that I'm, uh, you know, uh, your viewers can't see me. I'm uh, doing a cross sign here. Because the clinical scenario of PIH is so terrible, I'm throwing everything I have at it, right? Right. It was a bit of a surprise to me that if it's so, so common, 80% or 90% of of four and of phototype uh, four and five, 30 to plus percent in phototype three and four. Um, why, why haven't we seen split faces, split foreheads, um, th that kind of work? Is it difficult or is it because it's basically cosmetic procedures and you just don't want to fuss with making a mistake and have somebody half on, half off, if you will? Well, part of this and why uh, Ian and I went into addressing this topic is that, you know, I think issues in our patients of skin and color are just underrepresented in our scientific literature, unfortunately. And so the, you know, this is uh, uh, in the top 10 complaints for our Caucasian patients, hyperpigmentation is not there, right? It's uh, acne, wrinkles, uh, uh, skin cancer, etc., but in our uh, pigmented patients, our patients with melanin, hyperpigmentation, I think, is uh, amongst the top five uh, reasons to uh, seek medical assistance, right, uh, when it's skin-related. And so uh, there's, it seems to be this uh, uh, under-representation uh, of this issue of our patients with skin of color in our medical literature. Under-representation because no one's trying to do anything? Or is it just so difficult to do? Because with, in a problem that big... Mm -hmm. And it's got to be something that is of concern to many, many, many practitioners, patients. And you think somebody would have done some work, even in the past three years, four years. It doesn't have to go back 20 years. You didn't find a decent study in this whole group. Yeah, one can wonder if there is an aspect of... Uh keeping your formula in-house, you know, not that, that that's not outstanding science, right? I suspect that the reality of it all is that there is nothing to knock it out of the park and that the skincare regimen, whether it's for pre or post prophylaxis, is one of the few things that affects the risk of PIH in the entire treatment episode that is getting the right diagnosis, assessing the patient's skin, deciding on a device, choosing the uh, fluence, choosing the density, choosing the time of year, choosing the frequency of treatment. And so it, uh, it is probably a building block uh, uh, within that without being uh, necessarily the one thing that's necessarily going to either turn it off or turn it on. Well, as you pointed out in your article, this isn't just 
an issue related to lasers. This is a huge, huge problem. Um, in anybody that's in clinical practice, PIH is something, well, I know in myself, PIH, I mean, I have my magic formula, um, but I'm not going to pretend it's better than anybody else's. Uh, nor, <laughs> but I do believe that, that it's, it's such a huge problem. I, I cringe when I tell people about it. I, I spend a lot of my time telling them about how I'm probably not going to get them better. Mm-hmm. I may lighten it, but, you know, currently we just don't, we don't have the tools. And it's very disappointing. Um, tell me about tranexamic acid. Is it something you've tried? So tranexamic acid is something that I've integrated and used quite a bit in my patients with melasma. And uh, for the condition of melasma, I've actually found it quite useful. And uh, it's been uh, for it probably in the last five years, one of the like top 10 revolutionary things in my practice, I would say. Uh, you know, the uh, whenever I'd get a referral for melasma before tranexamic acid, uh, you know, I'd feel like you feel when you're diagnosing PIH. You're like, oh, it's chronic. We maybe make you better, et cetera. Uh, but uh, and even though we still have to tell people about sun protection uh, and we're still using compounded topicals uh, quite a bit for melasma, uh, the addition of tranexamic acid for this disease in particular uh, has been really re- useful in my practice. For PIH, I think there's a growing amount of evidence that's uh, trying to come in to see if it might be useful. In my hands, it has not been extraordinary. And certainly in the post-prophylaxis for PIH in the papers that we identified, also not amazing. So to go back into the melasma world for a second, um, for those that haven't tried it, is it 500 milligrams BID of transexamic acid? Um, You pick out your patients that aren't uh, prone to uh, embolic or occlusive uh, phenomena, vascular occlusive phenomena. But what about the pill? Yeah, and so in Canada, it comes as a 500 milligram tablet, and I prescribe 250 milligrams BID, so they have to get a pill cutter. And uh, I do a history like you do, looking for personal family history of thromboembolic events, looking for estrogen-containing oral contraceptives, asking about smoking and uh, the multiple spontaneous abortions. And so, you know, in the literature, the few, I think in one maybe case uh, out of China, uh, you know, they had a strong family history of thromboembolic event and were found to have uh, protein C or protein S deficiency. But that is the scenario that would have been picked up on history. Do you do the blood work? I, I do not. So I do that thorough history and I document it. You do the history. And I um, instruct patients on how to recognize a DVT, actually because I think uh, that's not a scenario that people are necessarily super knowledgeable about. And do you ever vary that dose? Uh, I haven't yet. And so I, I, uh, I stick to my uh, 250 BID. And what length of time do you allow before you start to say, <clears throat> this isn't going to work for you? Um, I usually see my patients every three to four months, but in those that mention that it's worked, they usually by four, six, eight weeks, they tell, they, they know that it's already worked. <laughs> and so, but I want to give it a decent amount of time. And do you have to continue it? Yeah, so that's the age old question, right? Melasma is still a chronic condition. 
And so when they go off of it, much like when they go off your um, proprietary uh, brightening compound, uh, disease can recur. And so I know that our colleagues out of the U.S. that are in maybe a bit more of a litigious space, they have a certain end date for their tranexamic acid, and they'll say it's three months, and then you stop, and they might cycle patients in and out of it. Uh, but I have the honest discussion with them that we actually don't really know. And so I've had patients that have uh, been taking the tranexamic acid for longer durations. All right. So I've read the article. I've, I, I now, if I'm using lasers, and I'm not a laser doctor, so thank you for, for helping us to understand this. The, it, to our laser colleagues, they're having the same issues you are undoubtedly. Are we putting forward this clobetazole thing as something that you found very useful, as best you can tell? Well, it to me, it makes a lot of sense. And there is some published evidence to support it a little bit. It's so interesting. We, you know, we wouldn't consider for a second not using hydroquinone pre or post if we're already doing it. Uh, even though the, the best evidence that we have for pretreatment prophylaxis actually shows that it, it didn't do anything. Uh, but strong from our, from our experience of treating hyperpigmentation with it, we would do it. And so now, you know, if we shut off inflammation a little bit with steroids immediately after the exposure, could we be able to short circuit that reaction so that we don't have as much pigment being laid down? Well, there's a couple of articles to actually support that type of factor. So there's a, there's a, the stratum corneum has a reservoir function. When you put the steroid on, it's going to be on for some period of time. Do you think it, that steroid effect is interfering with your wound healing or any, anything to do with the end uh, result? It's a good question, right? We, uh, acute inflammation is good, right? And uh, here we are uh, wanting to uh, shut it off a little bit. And so... Um, we're going to need someone that's much smarter and better equipped than me to answer that question. Uh, but the, you know, the truth is the hyperpigmentation is such a big deal that if I am sacrificing 5 or 10% of the response uh, in regards to the resurfacing, if I'm preventing that case of uh, hyperpigmentation, it's probably worth it to me and my patients. Uh, of course, because you can't, it's harder to treat it once you get it, right? Mm -hmm. So better to prevent it. And what about treating with the clobetazole before? I mean, again, I don't do the laser procedures. I'm assuming that putting the clobetazole ointment on afterwards is adds to the mess of the post-operative care. And what about putting it on for a day or two before you do the procedure? It's a good question. That uh, certainly hasn't been looked at and I haven't done it personally. You know, we can wonder, uh, you know, our, our devices generate quite a bit of inflammation. And so to pre-treat with a steroid ahead of uh, that very acute injury that we deliver, I, I wonder how effective that would be at curbing it, Right. And so, you know, if you, um, if you put clobetazole for two days and then you put poison ivy on the skin, I don't know, is that going to prevent it? I'm not sure. <laughs> and so, um, but, uh, you know, the things that transform medicine are repurposing of simple, inexpensive things, you know, like adding uh, vitamin D analogs to our 5-FU. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, I really like this out-of-the-box thinking uh, where, uh, you know, maybe uh, 
um, you know, maybe in five years, someone will uh, have this pretreatment clobetasol uh, protocol to prevent PIH. So very interesting. Okay, but it's people like me in the winters of our practice that are looking at people like you to get us out of that <laughs> wizardry, right? And, and provide us with some science that, that justifies all the mix and match that I grew up Whoa. with. I mean, everybody, as you, if you think wizardry is something you're dealing with today, I mean, the wizardry that I grew up with is incredible. I mean, everybody had a compound for everything. Um, and we had to talk people out of compounding things after a while, yeah. um, just simply because the science got so good in the, at the, in the pharma industry to compound. There's a, it's funny, you know, evidence-based medicine, the acronym is EBM, right? But I also talk about EBM, it's uh, eminence-based medicine or emotion-based medicine. Emotion <laughs> so based. I feel we still do a lot of that in dermatology. Well, hopefully you're getting good photographic records, though, of people going forward. And, and that's the one thing that, that I think the um, cosmetic group has really brought to the fore. At least you're documenting what you're doing and you're able to look back at it. So maybe you can convince um, Dr. Wong to step back in and look at this over the next three years and, 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 and get some sense of it. Yeah, you know, because the data is so sparse, even if we had some sort of uh, open label intramuros experience of what we've done, it would actually still bring something of quality to the pool of literature that's here. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, that really makes me want to standardize what we're doing uh, so that, uh, uh, you know, maybe uh, once we have 50 or 100 people on that protocol, that we can share that experience. Okay, well, then should we book the podcast um, <laughs> for a year, uh, a year from now? I mean, um, but March 2022, yeah. yeah I'll, I'll... 2022. <laughs> yeah, I like that idea. Because you're absolutely right. We need help and we need it desperately. We, we can't keep doing what we're doing if it's not working. Mm -hmm. And we can't rely on an, an, an individual saying, you know, uh, I, I have magic here. Or, or, we need more people that say, I have an idea. Mm -hmm. Let me work on that idea. Let me prove this or, or disprove it. We need more of that. So thank you very much for starting us on the path <laughs> because this is looking at it with a critical eye. And, um, and out of this, um, we learned that there's not a lot that's science-based. But we have decent pathophysiology. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed that part of the article that sort of went through and said, okay, this is the science. Here's what people are thinking to match what we do to that science. It's not really working out so well, but because there are so few people in each of these trials. I mean, bromonidine works the best <laughs> for all three patients it was tried on, right? And so, you know, we need more help in that spirit. So, so thank you very much for, for, for bringing this to a research paper. It was, it was really enlightening for, for our readers, I'm sure. So before I let you go, any final thoughts? Yeah, I think the final thoughts here is that when we're trying to prevent PIH, it's really the art of medicine and the integration of the patient's diagnosis and their skin and of what we're doing for them. And the, of course, we'd like to be uh, helped by uh, these um, sequences that we do before or after our treatments. But this is one of those difficult scenarios that require really us to put our almost our internist hat on and uh, to look at multiple factors simultaneously and how we're going to act there. And so, you know, 
yes, there is a bit of evidence to help us out, but I think really do not look to pretreatment or post-treatment hydroquinone as the be-all, end-all of uh, preventing uh, PIH, because we what we're realizing is that we know uh, very little about what can help us uh, in that field. Okay, then. Well, thank you. And until March 2022, when we can reconvene with some uh, data, I want to thank you for, for sharing what is currently there. With us. Thank you so much, Dr. Barber. Really appreciate it. That's it for this episode of JCMS Author Interviews Podcast. I hope you enjoyed your time with us and have a better understanding of the art of the use of lasers in, in our specialty. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. I'm Kirk Barber. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, be good to each other.